Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. So today, we're talking about stubbornness. How many of you would consider yourself stubborn? At least one of you. I saw a hand that was like, you bet I am! All right. Good times. Welcome. Glad you're here. Those of you at home or watching from wherever, whenever, welcome. We're glad you're here. In the summer of 1986, how many of you were alive? How many of you were not alive then? Let me say that. It's probably easier to do that. A handful of you. I was. I was 11, and uh, I was pretty cute. Anywho, that has nothing to do with the story. So in the summer of 1986, two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of what was then the USSR. Today it's known as Russia. Hundreds of passengers died as they were hurled into those icy waters below that day. News of the disaster, it says, was further darkened when an investigation revealed that the cause of the ac- what the cause of the accident was. It wasn't a technological problem like a radar malfunction or even thick fog on that day. The cause was human stubbornness. Each captain was aware of the other's ship. Both could have steered clear But according to news reports of the day, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Each was too proud to yield first. By the time they came to their senses, it was too late. We've all been stubborn a time or two in our lives. And stubbornness in and of itself is not a bad thing when it's for the right things. Okay? Stubbornness can be a very bad thing, though, when it's for the wrong things. As we'll see in just a moment, stubbornness against God's will and purposes always leads to bondage. So here we pick up the Israelite story. We're going to be jumping right into the book of Judges. How many of you are familiar with the book of Judges? I hear that amen over there. How many of you are familiar with the book of Judges? Okay, it's right after Joshua. Joshua's right after the books, or the book of Deuteronomy. Joshua, Judges, and we get to Ruth, and go on and so forth, so on and so forth, right? What is Judges? Judges is a book of judgmental people, right? It's what I would assume if I'd never heard of it before. (laughs) The bunch of judgmental people. Actually, no, the book of Judges is about the leaders of people that came after Joshua. Joshua was Moses' assistant, right? Moses was called out of Egypt, actually out of the land of Midian, to go back to Egypt to set the captives free. If we go even further back, you get the calling of Abraham. You go even further back, you get uh, the flood. And if you go even further back, you get Adam and Eve. All right? So we come to this point in time. The Israelites have entered the land under Joshua's leadership, the land of promise, which would be where modern-day Israel is, and parts of Jordan and Syria and all that. And they start to inhabit the land. But guess what happens? 
They don't do exactly what God told them to do when they came into the land. Actually, God said, if you'll be obedient to me completely, I'll drive the people out ahead of you. Guess what? They were not. They were not obedient. Instead, they were stubborn, thinking they could do it their own way. And what you could read about in the book of Joshua is how they fumbled this process up. Have you ever felt called to do something or you knew something was the right thing to do and you set out to do it and you knew the right way to do it, but then you just started experimenting with it a little bit or tweaking it a little bit, thinking, well, maybe if I just do it this way or if I do it that way, but you know that you probably should just stay the course and do the thing that you set out to do. See, God had told the Israelites, I'll be with you. I will lead and guide you. I will drive out the people ahead of you that are in the land. So basically, you will begin to inhabit the land that is already prepared for you. And so they come into the land, and they start tweaking God's plan. Is it ever, let me ask you this. I'm not assuming everybody in here believes in God or has a faith in God, but let's just assume for a moment for your sakes that there was a God. If you're here and you don't believe in God, let's just assume that there was. Do you think it's good to tweak his plan? Do you think that you might have a better plan than he has? All right, because one thing about God that we all know, whether you believe in him or not, is that he's perfect in every way. That there is no way in him that is wrong or deceitful or bad. And so God gives the Israelites a plan. He sets them under the leadership of Moses and then under the leadership of Joshua. And they decide, yeah, God's plan isn't quite what it's cracked up to be. Let's tweak it a bit. Right? That would be like me having no experience as a mechanic, hearing that my engine is running and thinking, I bet I can make it run better. And getting my ratchet and my hammer and whatever other tools I need and just getting in there and rooting around. Or, or let, me, let me put it this way, it'd be like me being a medical doctor, a surgeon, brain surgeon. Let's go with that one. That would be fun. And you need brain surgery, right? And me saying, I, I don't know, but I got this cutting tool and I got a, a little mallet and this saw I bet I can fix it. <laughs> See, God has a perfect plan, and when we, when we veer off the path of what his perfect plan is, guess what happens? We get the results of what we think our plan is, or, or, or we get the results of what we think should happen by helping God out. I've never been able to help God out. I found that out very early on in life. And I found it out in about 23 years of ministry that when God gives a plan, and we can read about those plans in his Bible, and I think, oh, I could tweak that great commission. Yeah, I can. Oh, I can teach them to obey. Oh, I got some teachings. But I don't use the Bible, right? It's about feel good. Now, I want to make you happy. Do you know, I just read this yesterday, totally different subject. Did you know that Centenary University, it's a really small college, has a master's degree, just came out with it, in happiness? <laughs> no joke. There's a master, it's a 30-credit-hour master's degree 
of happiness, and it's $17,700. That makes me sad. I think if I was continuing to have to pay that, I'd be sad. You know, the really true source of happiness is rooted in Christ. I could tell you that for $10,000 if you want. I'll give you a $7,700 discount. Okay, it's free. You can have it right now. We get to the book of Judges, and it's, it's interesting because the way the book of Judges starts out, chapter 1 basically caps off or reminds us of what the end of the last chapter of Joshua told us. Joshua dies. Spoiler alert if you haven't read it yet. He's not alive today. So he dies at the end of Joshua, the book, and he dies again, not twice, but it's kind of a reiteration of that at the next book we call Judges. And we get to chapter 2, and this is where we get the introduction of the rest of the book. Basically, if you read chapter 2 of the book of Judges, you find out, oh, they did that over and over and over and over again. So let's read Judges chapter 2, starting with verse 1. The angel of the Lord, and when you read that, my wife gets, my my wife, and I didn't know this, my wife doesn't like it when I start in the middle of a sentence and I stop in the middle of a sentence without completing it to tell you something about the sentence. She's not here today, so I can say whatever I want, because she is my conscience, and she will not watch this later, so I'm pretty safe, and you guys aren't going to say a word to her, right? All right, good for you. So the angel of the Lord, whenever you see that in the Bible, guess what that is a representation of? The Lord himself. The angel of the Lord. This isn't some designated angel set aside to do the Lord's bidding. There are those in the Bible, and when there are those in the Bible, it explicitly states that. But this, the angel of the Lord, is somehow the embodiment of Yahweh, all right? We know This to be more than likely the one who wrestled with Jacob. I think it's in Genesis chapter um, 22. No, 32. 32. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land and I swore to give your ancestors. And I said I would never break my covenant with you. For your part... You were to not make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were, destroy their, you were to destroy their altars. You disobeyed my command. So what are they doing? God said, I promised. I promised you that I would be faithful to you. And actually, when I covenanted with you, it was reciprocal because you covenanted with me as well. You said, we will obey everything the Lord commands. But the problem is, God says, when you came into the land and I was fulfilling my end of the bargain, you didn't fulfill your end of the bargain. I told you to destroy their altars. Well, that seems so mean. It would make them very unhappy. Yeah, but they're worshiping false gods. You're coming into the land that I have given you There is not to be any of that left. No residue of these false gods or false idols. I am your God and you are my people. You disobeyed my command. And then God asked the question, why did you do this? As a parent, we have rules in my house. 
and the rules, when they're broken, what is the first question I usually ask? <laughs> Why did you do that? You know you weren't supposed to do X, Y, or Z, but you're doing, why did you do that? And so what does a parent typically do when, when their child breaks one of the covenants or one of the commands of the home, one of the rules, what, do they, what does a parent usually do after they ask, why did you do that? And they get the response, I don't know, cause, because I wanted to, I, I don't know, any number of things, right? And what's a parent usually do? There's usually a punishment or a consequence for that kind of behavior. Why do we get so upset when God punishes people in the Old Testament? Any thoughts? Why, why do we get so, ooh, he's a mean God in the Old Testament, but Jesus is super nice. Especially when he braids that whip, turns over money changers' table, and slaps people on the back with it. Different sermon for a different time. So now I declare, this is still the angel of the Lord speaking, now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. Not going to do it. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. Fine. You're not going to do what I say. I'm not going to do this for you. Does that make God bad or wrong for not doing that? For, no, because he never broke the covenant. He's still with them. He's still their God. But he says, now because you didn't do what I told you to do, it seems like you've made a choice. And that choice wasn't for me. It was for these other people and their gods. So I'm not going to drive the people out now. I'm not going to do it. You're going to have to live with them as your neighbors. And not only that, you're going to have to live with the worship of their gods around you. And sometimes you're going to be looking and going about your daily routines with the worship of me, but you're going to see how they're worshiping these other, other gods. And sometimes it may work out for them, and other times it might not. And you might be tempted to think, well, maybe their god has something going on that I want. And so you might start to worship them. They'll become... A temptation to you. And when the angel of the Lord had finished speaking to the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they called the place Bochim, which is weeping. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord there. It's interesting. When you call out somebody for doing what's wrong, there's one of two responses. like blatant rejection of what you said, or it's immediate repentance. We love the immediate repentance as parents. Like, yeah, it makes the, here's the secret. Kids, if you admit to what you did wrong and you truly repent for it, I mean, you're right, I know I shouldn't have done that, it would probably make the punishment a little less in the long run. Just say it. So they wept loudly, they offered sacrifice to the Lord. And then verse 6, after Joshua sent the people away, each of the tribes left to take possession of the land allotted to them, and the Israelites served the Lord throughout their lifetime, excuse me, throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. 
Remember, this generation that had come in with Joshua had seen the great miracles God did in the wilderness, the giving of manna, the quail, the water from rocks in the middle of the desert. They had seen miraculous things. Snake, like a bronze snake on a pole healing those who'd been bitten by venomous snakes. They'd seen a lot of cool things. And it's as if they had short-term Memory loss, they couldn't remember those things, or they remembered them, but they become such a distant memory <coughs> that it didn't make sense to them, or they didn't care about it anymore. Verse 8, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. What's the average lifespan here in America? 70s, right? Huh. You hope so. Not me. This world's getting so nasty. Anyway, I digress. They buried him in the land that he had, allocated, he had been allocated at Timnah, Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. These are fun, fun words. You should read them sometime. After that generation died. All right, so this is the generation that grew up in the wilderness under the age of 20, and they're probably, they had been in their 60s-ish when they came into the promised land. Now, Joshua has died, and then that generation that had come into the promised land has died, and now there's a whole new generation of people who are born in the promised land and growing up there. But they grew up and did not acknowledge the Lord, Yahweh, or remember the mighty things that he had done for Israel of the past. It is now history that the reading of their own ancestors that they didn't get to see and or witness. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and images of Ashtoreth. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to the raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them. <gasps> so now, not only did he say, I'm not driving these people out, because they have so perverted themselves of worship of other gods, and we'll talk about what that means in just a moment, God says, I'm not going to fight for you anymore. And when God withdraws himself from fighting for you, what do you think happens? <laughs> Nothing good, right? You succumb to everything around you. They abandoned the Lord, served Baal, Astra, and made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to the raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated just as he had warned. It's not like he hadn't warned them of this. And the people were in great distress. And then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet, the, yet Israel did not listen to the judges. But here's a word that we like to soften a little bit. Prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. That is an overtly sexual word. Do you understand what I'm saying? They sold themselves out to another. 
They became prostitutes to other gods. Do you understand what I'm saying? I know we have kids in the room right now. The Bible is not G-rated. Do you understand me? And I'm not saying you shouldn't read it. Please, I beg of you to read it. But when we gloss over these things, we miss the meat of the word of God. And we tend to only look at it as some fairy tale of good stories and fun stuff, except for the Old Testament where there's a mean and nasty God. There's a lot going on here that you really need to unpack. So they prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors who did not walk in obedience, or who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. Isn't that funny? Because what did I just tell you about their ancestors? They didn't obey God to drive out, or that he was going to drive out the people. They were to crush the altars in the temples of these false gods, and they didn't do it. And so God says, fine, I'm not going to drive the people out. They were also command breakers. But what you see in one generation of command breakers, this happens today too, the next generation will typically ramp it up a little bit more. And the next generation a little bit more until you get to this place of complete degradation in a society that you have to start over because there's nowhere else to go. You are at the bottom. You see this in people's lives too. I've been around uh, Butler now for 10 years, and the drug epidemic, uh, epidemic here has not gotten better, it's gotten worse. I've done several overdose funerals, and I've asked myself this question after I've been in this cycle with people before who have severe addiction problems. When is rock bottom for you? How much further can you go down from where you are right now? Because my fear is if you go much further, you're going to die. And you're rock bottom. There's no return from that. So how much further can you go down? So this is what happens not only with individuals, with societies. When they lose their moral bearing, their sense of truth, their sense of morality and ethics. And I contend that the only truth, morality, and ethics worth ever following is rooted in Yahweh through Jesus Christ. The one who said he was the way, the truth, and the life. This is why I've dedicated my life to preaching, teaching, living, breathing, reading, studying, researching this. Not because I get some kick out of it, but because I believe it wholeheartedly and I will go to my, go to my grave with this message on my lips. So he raised up these judges and they rejected the judges. These judges, who were they? So judges in the Old Testament, especially the book of Judges, because that's where we read about them, were leaders. They were military leaders. They were religious leaders. And they were the ones that would rule on behalf of the people based on the covenant agreement with God and the laws of God given at Mount Sinai. Okay? So these people were put in place and for about 300 years, we have this time span where judges ruled the land. A judge would die. There would be a time period without a judge. God would raise up another judge. There would be another time period, and then another judge would be raised up. But you know what, interestingly enough, happens? Each successive judge 
becomes worse and worse and worse. We, we really, you, how many of you remember growing up in church, if you grew up in church, the story of Samson? Yeah. Ooh, mighty Samson. He was so awesome. And we elevate him to this hero status. He was a deplorable judge. He was really bad. Read his story. He's not somebody you would want your kids to emulate. We get all the way through the judges. And finally, the people are groaning enough that by the time you get to the books of Samuel, Samuel, who had been a judge, they started saying, we want a king so we can actually look like the other nations around us. They were tired of God giving them leaders because they'd seen those leaders be more than just, that be just really sinful human beings and they themselves being sinful human beings. They said, well, shoot, we're, we're pretty much all the way into the worldly culture. We might as well have a king like the rest of the nations around us. And God, who is a loving God, says, okay, that's really what you want. But let me tell you ahead of time, this is what you're going to get. When you replace me as your king for another earthly king, he's going to take your sons and daughters and put them into service in the armies, in the fields. He will enslave them. And not only that, he's going to take your lands, you know, your ancestral lands. He will take those and he'll say, it's for the use of the kingdom, God's kingdom. Eminent domain before it was eminent domain. So these people in the book of Judges, after Judges die, they return to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. Verse 19. Then they went after other gods, serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices in stubborn ways. So the Lord burned with anger against Israel. He said, because these people have violated my covenant, which I made with their ancestors, and have ignored my commands, I will no longer drive out the nations that Joshua left unconquered, unconquered when he died. You see, I did this, he says, to test Israel, to see whether or not they would follow the ways of the Lord as their ancestors did. That's why the Lord left those nations in place. He did not quickly drive them out or allow Joshua to conquer them all. A couple things going on here. God may allow an obstacle in your way to test you. Do you give in to the obstacle, the temptation, or do you push beyond it? no matter how tough it is? It's a good question, right? I see a lot of people giving up. See, this is why in the New Testament and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says the way to him, the way to heaven, is really narrow. He's not trying, just understand what I'm saying here. It's not like he made it narrow to complicate factors or the gate is narrow that we have to go through to get there. It's just narrow. It's a difficult path, this side of heaven. They said the road that the world paves is super wide, and the gate's wide, and many people take that path because they've been deceived in thinking that path is easier. Yeah, this path of living for God is very difficult. That's why a lot of people don't make it. Why? Because it's difficult, and we don't like difficult circumstances. We want everything easy. Easy. 
God has pulled out all the stops that he can this side of heaven. Why do you think Jesus came? Why do you think Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves? It's because he's merciful that he's loving. He pulled out all the stops and he took our punishment. And he offers the gift of salvation. He never, ever, ever, ever says it's going to be easy. And if you've been sold that bill of goods by some other preacher, pastor, teacher in the religious structure of Christianity, I apologize that you've been sold a bill of goods. That's a lie. Living a life of faith in Christ is not easy, but the end result is amazing. And the evidence of God along the way is enough to sustain you for the long run. So here's a key point. God takes pity on his people by repeating, uh, repeatedly rescuing them as they stubbornly rebel against his perfect plan. Here's the cycle. Sin, slavery, sorrow, salvation. I just gave you the four points. You can fill those in. And if you need to take a rest right now, you can. But I'm going to un unpack those really quickly this morning. Sin. I told you I need to go a little bit deeper into what was going on in the Israelite culture when they moved into the promised land. The two main gods that were worshipped there were Baal and Ashtoreth. They were fertility gods. Baal was the husband god, and Ashtoreth was the female and or wife god. And the way that they would bring about blessing on the people, so to speak, where do they would copulate? That's a word that you'll have to define for your kids. I'm trying to be G-rated as best I can. They would consummate their union and spread the fertility of that union throughout the crops. Or if somebody was unable to have kids or was barren, then they would be able to conceive and have kids. And so guess what these temples of worship to Baal and Ashtoreth what you would do when you went there. Any guess? You may have heard me talk about this before. So the temples of Baal and Ashtoreth being sex gods or fertility gods, um, you would go into, this, into these temples and you would offer money and other sacrifices and then you would sleep with a temple prostitute in order to gain the favor of that specific God so that your crops would grow and you would have a great harvest. Or so that your wife would become pregnant or she would go to the temple to a male prostitute. Yes, they had those. And, she would, and then she'd just somehow amazingly get pregnant. The Lord, Baal, or Ashtoreth, has blessed us with child. Not knowing how biology works, they assumed that God had blessed them. And so imagine what kind of a temptation it had been for the Israelites who lived in the land, and they saw these people of these other pagan nations worshiping these gods prospering. Well, wait a minute. If they're prospering, then that must mean their God is real. And if their God is real, I want some of that too. Let me ask you a question. How many people do you know that reject any notion of God but who are living some very successful lives? 
They're living lives of compromise with ethics and morals, and they're throwing caution to the wind, and they're doing whatever they please, but somehow it just seems to rain golden sunshine on them. How in the world is that possible? And you're barely scraping by, and you're worshiping Yahweh, the Christian God, through Jesus Christ. And I'm struggling. And I got these bills to pay, and then I got raccoons in my attic. That's me. No joke. Just got a bill. Like, uh, it's like $7,000 to fix that problem. I got a BB gun or a 22 that that'll take care of that. Just kidding. Well, I'm not kidding, but still. And you're thinking, why? Why do I have to do, go through this? What's the purpose? Right? Why do I have to go through this? I mean, here's this person I know, and they are amazingly wealthy. It just seems like everything they set their hand to succeeds. Now imagine you're an Israelite, you've come into the land, and things are going well for you, but you worship Yahweh. You offer sacrifices to Yahweh. And it's not working out the way you'd hoped or planned or dreamed. Now maybe, just this one time, I'll go, I'll go to, I'm not going to sleep with the temple prostitute, but I'll offer a sacrifice there. I'll, I'll pinch some incense and throw it on their incense burner. It, I'll just do it one. I mean, I've got to cover my bases, right? I mean, what, what, who's it going to hurt really anyway? See, sin is not just a slippery slope. Sin is an open chasm. It's not a slope. It's a complete drop-off. You understand? It is one step and you're in it. Right? Sin does this. Sin opens the doors, not to possibilities, but destruction. And you can believe the lie that well, if I just do X, Y, or Z, I know, I know God won't approve of it, but it'll make life a little bit, and God will forgive me anyway, right? You ever do that? I mean, God, God will forgive me. God's a God of love and grace. and Yes, he is, but he doesn't take lightly our prostituting ourselves out to other gods. Well, I don't worship, but I only worship Jesus. But let me ask you this. Have you ever bowed at the altar of sex or sexuality? Like the Israelites did. They gave in to temptation to celebrate sexual sin of any kind, elevating it or turning a blind eye to it within the church. See, that's one of the taboo topics of our day, sexuality, sexual sin. I get asked, Pastor, how do you view that? Because there are other churches that are open to you know, anything goes with regard to sexuality. I mean, that's an outdated, outmoded thing. And really, sexual sin in the Old Testament was for, you know, just really extreme circumstances like temple prostitution at Baal and Ashtoreth. You'll find scholars out there that promote that ideology. And there are churches now that are adopting that. We're not one of those churches. And I get a lot of flack for that. I get a lot of flack, and this will probably be stricken from YouTube or Facebook or whatever. I get a lot of flack for not 
stating that there's only, or, or for not stating there are multiple genders. And I know that's not a popular thing anymore, but there's male and female. Because I believe in what Scripture states, and, and, and I have yet to found it to be untrue. I found many other things outside of the Bible to be untrue that are really just experimentation. It's like throwing spaghetti on a wall and seeing what noodle sticks. But see, I firmly rooted myself in a faith and belief in God through Scripture. And yes, I'm willing, I'm willing to go to bat for that, even if it means my name is besmirched. I'm not saying you don't love those that are caught up in those kinds of things. We should be the most loving people in society. We shouldn't be picketing, cursing, throwing people down the gutter for not living a life of faith in Jesus Christ. We should be light and salt and showing people the way to freedom and salvation. Not beating people over the head with the Bible or with the Word of God, but instead being the embodiment of truth to people who need to know the way, the truth, and the life. We also bow at the altar of money when our drive to earn more takes us away from faith, family, and friends. We bow at the altar of success when achievement and accolades give us more of a high than helping others along the paths we take. We bow at the altar of feel-good emotions when we're not willing to take a good, hard, long look at the consequences of our poor decisions and take responsibility for their outcome. No, our God's maybe are not like Baal or Ashtoreth, but in many regards, they're worse. They deceive us into believing that they're innocuous. No, no, we don't go to temples to have sex with a prostitute. No, but you... Oh, I probably shouldn't say that. No, but you sleep around as if you do. A pin drop in here right now. You know why? Because we're scared. The real reason that Christianity is faltering and dying in the United States today is because I believe we're stuck in this cycle right now, if not into the next cycle called slavery. Go ahead and put that on the screen. We're in one of these two stages. I don't think we've hit sorrow yet. <laughs> I don't think we're like, oh, Lord, help us. I think some of us in our in our American culture are, but I don't think a vast number. And let's just say, this was to the people of God. I don't, let's just leave the rest of the world out of this. Let's talk about the church, because that's what this is. The church devolving into sinful behavior, being enslaved by it, and then coming to a point of just utter sorrow, and then God having sorrow for them enough to say, I'm going to save them. Where are we? The reason we hear a pen drop and the reason these are very tough topics to talk about is because they're not popular within the culture the way maybe they once were. To talk about sin as sin can get some very adverse reactions. Even when you say it with love. To talk to somebody about how they have been enslaved to sin can be a very tough conversation. 
Because guess what the conversation becomes? You're just judging me. You have no right. Mind your own business. And I hear the hearkening back to Cain and Abel, where God comes to Cain and says, Cain, where's your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? See, sin drives us away from each other rather than binding us to each other. It drives us away from God rather than binding us to God. That's what the Israelites got stuck in. They just thought, if I worship a little bit more of these other gods, then I'll have more than not enough. You see, one of the things these generations forgot to do is the mandate that Deuteronomy 6, where Moses had wrote, written to them, Tell this to your kids. Talk about it when you rise up. Talk about it before you lie down at night. Write it on your doorposts, on your lintel. Bind it to your, to your forearms, to your forehead. Whenever you go about your daily routine, talk about the commands that the Lord your God is giving you and the covenant relationship he desires to make with you. And give it to your children so that their children can know and so that their children can know and so that their children can know just one generation away, aren't we? I think this is what Judges is trying to describe. See, the generation that came into the promised land the very first time, the ones that God had spared to now come in and their parents died off in the wilderness, after they died, the next generation, what did they do? Just threw caution to the wind. They did whatever they wanted to. Sounds like it, right? One generation. And then they devolved into slavery. The Lord came very angry at this. I want to talk to you about slavery because we don't like to talk about that much either. It's really one of those taboo topics, especially in the era of BLM and critical race theory and all that because we have a blight on our culture, right, called slavery. The Civil War was to rectify that, the Emancipation Proclamation, but then for about 100 years we had this horrible segregationist, Jim Crow nastiness and then we get to the civil rights era in the 1960s to rectify that, to integrate, to shut down the separate fountains and the different seating uh, uh, things on buses and different things like that. And yeah, we've got a really ugly history in certain points. It doesn't mean that everything about us is wrong. Same thing for the Israelites. They had a pretty nasty history too. But those of us who are believers in Christ looked at them to not only learn about what they did wrong, but to learn about what they did right. But what about this thing called slavery? We don't like to talk about it because it carries such a stigma in our culture. But see, God wants to enslave us. <laughs> Hear me out on this. You were a slave to something. Whether you like to think you are or not, I am my own person. Then you become a slave to self. Right? You are captivated or controlled by something. Even if you are the master of your destiny, you are enslaved to self. And what do we call somebody who's enslaved to self? Selfish. The reality is God wants us to be his treasured possession. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. This is God speaking. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession. Do you know what that really means? You will be my slaves. 
The Greek calls it doulos. Paul uses this word a lot. He's, he talks about being enslaved to God. You're either a slave to the world or you're enslaved to God. But this enslavement to God has this weird working out into what's called freedom. When you bind yourself to God and you follow him and you covenant with him and he begins to take control of you, you become free. But when you enslave yourself to the world, you are dead to Christ and you are literally dead to the world. But when you enslave yourself to God through Jesus Christ, you are dead to self and alive to God through Jesus Christ. That is the good news. That's why we call it good news. That's why we call it the gospel. Because it breaks sin and slavery and brings freedom. To be enslaved to God is the most free you will ever be. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but enslavement to the world is bondage. Enslavement to God is freedom. The interesting thing to note about the Israelites being God's treasured possession is that God's possession of them was for the purpose of their freedom as well as to be his representatives to the world. They were to be his nation of priests to the rest of the world. God's desire is that all people are dispossessed from the world and given over to him. Again, this is because there's freedom in him and there is bondage and death to the world. Why do we always choose bondage? which leads to sorrow. Now, it's interesting in this case, the Israelites will get to this point of just utter enslavement and to the bottom, that they would be sorrowful. But guess what they would not do? They wouldn't cry out to God. Rarely, if ever, do you see in the book of Judges that when they got to their worst point, they say, oh, Lord, save us. Now, this depiction of sorrow is God's sorrow and pity on them. It said the Lord would take pity on them and raise up a judge. See, like a loving parent does, a true loving parent, when they see their kid, they're willing, so we're willing to let our kids suffer certain things because we, we want them to, to be tested, to grow stronger. But at a certain point, quite honestly, we're like, oh, okay, it's time, I need to step in. You ever done that? As a parent, well, you'll let, them, you'll let them try something long enough. You'll let them just become utterly frustrated, and then you come in, and you're like, oh, I have pity. Let me show you how this is. And then, and then you'll bail them out. See, this, this is what happens. See, God steps in, and he says, all right, enough, enough. I'm going to set you free. I'm going to give you a judge. You're going to follow that judge. They're going to become your defender for me. And they're going to become the one that points you to me. See, it says God was grieved or God, God felt sorrow. That's what this word pity means in the Hebrew. And, and I don't think we realize that enough. Does God really take pity or sorrow? Does God have emotions? Yeah. There's this long-held belief in some traditions that God is emotionless. Because to have emotion means you're weak. And if you're weak, then you can't be God. So God would be emotionless or unchangeable, immutable. And yes, he is unchangeable in his very nature, but he feels emotions. He feels at times this sense of, I'm sorry I did this instead of that. 
And it doesn't mean that his doing this versus that were wrong or right. They were both right decisions. This, for instance, Saul, the first king of Israel, it says twice that God regretted making him king. It's a whole different sermon topic for a different time, but suffice it to say, God does at times feel regret. Why? Not because he chose the wrong choice, but because he chose a person who inevitably would fail. But isn't that the case for every human being? He chooses us, and we fail time and time again. And so at just the right time in human history, in God's heightened sense of sorrow, you can flip to the next slide, Jesus stepped out of eternity and into time. Representations of Jesus like judges and kings Prophets would step onto the scene from time to time, but they wouldn't be enough. And at just the right time in history, God's outpouring of sorrow evolved into what we call salvation. Because he took upon himself the sin of the world. Your failures, your sin, everything that you've ever done, he said, I'm going to take care of that. Once and for all. This is what the whole book of Hebrews is about in the New Testament. He was the high priest who offered a sacrifice. And he didn't offer an animal sacrifice. He offered himself. The great high priest laid himself down on the altar. And because he was perfect and holy and good and everything that we are not, the sacrifice he made broke the cycle of sin and death once and for all. Now, you can continue to be enslaved to the cycle of sin and death and slavery and all of that jazz if you want to, but it's not until you say, I've had enough. <laughs> Jesus, take the wheel. Sorry. Uh, that's where I was going in my mind, Carrie Underwood. It's not until you get to that point where you're like, God, I've had enough. And you truly surrender everything. Your relationships, your children, your marriage, when you release it all, and I don't say get rid of it, do you hear me? But when you say, I'm no longer in control, God, you are. And so as I surrender all control in every facet of my life to you, my job, my health, and everything, it doesn't mean you are just being ignorant of it. It's you're, you're saying, I'm taking full charge of this. And because everything I try to do to fix the things in my life continues to fail, I want you to fix it. And so I'll follow your lead. I'll follow what you say to do. Well, Brandon, I don't know what to Read the word of God. It's a wealth not just of knowledge but of truth that if you begin to live by it, if you begin to live by the words of God and you covenant with him through Jesus Christ, you can have life to the full. You can know freedom when you don't even have two nickels to rub together. You can know, you can know true success even when you're at the bottom of the barrel. Salvation isn't just for the worthy 
because there is no one worthy. It's for those who realize they are unworthy and submit themselves anyway. Our worship team's going to come forward and close this out, but I'm going to close with this story. David's first beating came at the hands of his father on his 17th birthday after he accidentally broke a window in the house. He says, he kicked me and punched me relentlessly. Afterward, he apologized. He was an abusive alcoholic, and it's a cycle that I'm doing my best to end now, he says. But it took a long time for David to get to this point. See, most of his teen years and 20s were spent in jail or on probation, in and out of addiction treatment centers. When it felt like his dreams were entirely dashed, he found hope in a Christ-centered treatment center through a relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, listen to this. He says, I used to be filled with nothing but despair, but now I'm pushing myself in the other direction. When I get up in the morning, the first thing I tell God is that I'm surrendering my will over to him. This is Luke chapter 9 where Jesus says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must deny yourself daily, take up your cross and follow me. You see, when we come to God with lives shattered, whether by others' wrongdoings or our own, God takes our broken hearts and makes us new. If anyone is in Christ, the old is gone, the new is here. Christ's love and life breaks into the cycles of our past, giving us a new future. And it doesn't end there. Throughout our lives, we can find hope and strength in what God has done and continues to do in us each and every day moment. And when you stumble and fall along the way, you don't stay there. You don't get off the track. You get up and you continue in the direction you were heading before you stumble. Those who give up are destined to fail. Those who press on to win the race are those who win. So where do you find yourself in this cycle today? Sin, slavery, sorrow, salvation, where does our church and our culture, where does it find its place? See, God takes pity on his people by repeatedly rescuing them as they stubbornly rebel against his perfect plan. How much better is it to stop rebelling, to stop being stubborn, and to say, okay, whatever it takes. I don't know where you are today, or where you are at home listening online or where, whenever you're listening. But I do believe sincerely that God's word doesn't go forth void. And I do believe sincerely that that word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And that word gave his life for us. And through that word, we know as Jesus, we can have life everlasting no matter where we are in life. It takes one step in the right direction to begin the adventure of a lifetime we call freedom in Christ. The altars are always open. People will pray for you to my right, your left. You can pray alone over here. But regardless wherever you are today, if you're in bondage, don't be stubborn. Don't be foolhardy. Don't be prideful or arrogant. Let it go. Heavenly Father, in this place, 
There are a number of people from a number of different histories and backgrounds and experiences, some that have grown up in abusive homes and situations, sexually, physically, or otherwise. And Heavenly Father, there are some that believe that they can't do better, that are continuing to perpetuate a cycle that they grew up with. There are some that maybe have slipped into a cycle that they never experienced before, but now they don't know how to get out of it. God, it's the enemy's great lie to make us believe that we can't do better. But the only way we can do better is through Jesus Christ. Remind us that when we completely surrender all to you through Jesus Christ is the beginning of freedom. But it takes a complete letting go of the self in order to do that. It's not easy, but it's necessary. We ask in this place today that you would break the bondage and the chains of sin and slavery that tie us down. Help us to truly repent in sorrow and receive the salvation you long to give as your treasured possession. We love you, Heavenly Father, and we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.